Well, so glad to have all of you with us this morning. We are studying the book of Isaiah together. So if you would like, please, I want to invite you to open your Bibles, turn to the book of Isaiah, and we're in chapter 43 this morning. So please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43. We're beginning in verse 8 together today. Now we are last week, if you were with us last week, had a big introduction to the book of Isaiah, covered a whole lot of uh, historical and geographical things uh, last week relating to the book of Isaiah. So if you missed that, um, I want to just encourage you to go back and and watch that and kind of get caught up to speed with us so we're all on the same page together. But here we are in verse 8. Some two years ago, we left off in chapter 43, verse 7, and we're picking up in verse 8 together. Okay, so let's let's look at it. Let's read first uh, verses 8 through 13. Isaiah 43, verses 8 through 13. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this, and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Some pretty amazing statements there. So uh, what I'd like to do is kind of set the scene of, of what we've been uh, studying. And uh, when, we, when we get to uh, Isaiah 43, much has already happened, right? So just a few things that we covered last week. First of all, uh, the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is written by Isaiah. It was written in the year 742 to 701 B.C. Keeping the B.C. in mind is very important. Audience, who is he writing to? He's writing to the southern tribe of Israel, which is Judah. It's actually composed of Judah and Benjamin, two of the 12 tribes of Israel. The rest of the 10 compose the northern kingdom. They have since been destroyed by the Assyrian army um, at, at the writing of where we're at right now. And uh, so where's the setting of the entire book? The entire book takes place before, during, and after the Assyrian threat. Uh, where are we in this whole story? Well, Because this was written between 742 and 701 B.C., um, and uh, there are events that just took place in 701 B.C. in chapters 36, 37, 38, uh, that means that for the narrative portions of Isaiah, they're kind of in our past. So there were a lot of stories, right, in the first, uh, the first half of the book of Isaiah. Lots of stories and situations, and these people were doing that, and then these people came, and we were following a storyline. Well, the second half of the book of Isaiah isn't so much about following narratives as it is about prophetic passages. And so what we have in front of us is a prophetic passage, not a narrative. 
in Isaiah that can kind of be confusing because we're, we're kind of going back and forth between here's a narrative, here's a story, and then here's a prophecy. Was that part of the story or was that something in the future? And so we can kind of get lost in that, right? So what, we're ha- what we have in front of us today is that all this narrative has taken place. And one of the very last things that happened in the narrative was Hezekiah was in in uh, Jerusalem, and he had just uh, been sick, and he got better, and the Lord added 15 years to his life. You remember all this? And so the Lord added 15 years to his life, and then the guy named Meredith Baladan, who was in Babylon, came to visit him from Babylon. Where's the map? We've got to see the map. got to see the map every week. The map uh, is very important uh, to everyone's health. So there's the map. So Babylon, way over here. Now, you don't just cross straight over. You go up and down is, is the travel route. So uh, people from Babylon came all the way over to Jerusalem to see King Hezekiah and say, oh, we heard you were sick and now you're better. And so we just want to come and see how you're doing. And while they were there, they said, oh, by the way, show us all the wealth you have in this kingdom. Uh, they were there as spies. They were there to scope out the land because they were soon coming to raid it and take everything that they had. And in fact, the Lord said to Hezekiah through Isaiah, Um, those guys you just showed your entire kingdom to, uh, soon they are going to possess it all. Just letting you know. And then Hezekiah said, when's that going to happen? Not in your lifetime. And Hezekiah went, okay, what's that matter to me then? And that's where we left the the, uh, narrative section of Isaiah. So now where are we? We're talking about future prophecies concerning what God had just said to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Okay, so given that, whenever you have a prophecy, um, they, uh, there's, they're very, um, uh, very illustrative. They're, they're, there's always illustrations or examples. And so what you have in this particular example is a uh, courtroom scene. And so that's where we're kind of going to, uh, we're going to head here. We're going to look at the courtroom scene. So in verses 8 through 13, you have God's courtroom. And in God's courtroom, you have two sections. You have a trial, and then you have a verdict. That's what we just read. We read about a courtroom scene, which is brand new to verse 8. So you're thinking, well, what happened in verse 7? Well, it kind of changes pace here in verse 8. It sets a new scene for us. And so when we get to verse 8, it's kind of a new thought. What's happening in verse 8? Isaiah is illustrating for us. He's, he's creating a mental image that we all envision a courtroom. Now, our courtrooms are different than their courtrooms, but we can envision a courtroom. That's okay. So just think about a courtroom, and he's saying, here are all the people involved in this courtroom setting. And so we look at the trial. Who are all the people involved? I have, a, I have it on the screen for you. Here's, here's the characters in, in the courtroom, okay? First of all, what's the charge? Why do you go to court? Only when there's a charge brought against someone, right? What is the charge, and who is it brought against? The charge is that the God of Israel is not the sovereign Lord of history. That's the charge. We're going to see it in just a second. That's the charge. God of Israel, you are not the sovereign Lord of history, and we're taking you to court over it. Okay? It just so happens that God is also the judge in the story. Okay? It it also just so happens that God is also the defendant. Okay? So... I know, I know that's some, somewhat difficult to wrap our minds around, but God is the judge in the, in the story, and he is also the defendant. But there is a plaintiff. Now, the plaintiff is the one bringing the charge, and the charge being brought is that God is not the sovereign Lord of history, and it is the nations. Just look at verse 9. All the nations gather together. The peoples assemble. 
Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses. Why do you need witnesses? Because this is a courtroom scene. To prove them right and let them hear and say, it is true. So, all right, nations, you've gathered together. You've brought this charge against the God of Israel that he's not the sovereign Lord of history. Now, all right, great. Uh, bring your witnesses forward to prove your case. And they, they say, uh, we can't find anybody. That's the last you hear of it. They can provide no witnesses. There is no one who can declare the former things. There is no one who can declare what is to come. And there is no one who can do what the God of Israel does. So where are your witnesses that can prove that God is not the sovereign Lord of history? Show me. Witnesses are important in a trial, right? Show me. They can provide no one. No one can prove that this is true. So it continues on. So uh, now we, we move over to the defendant. And uh, the defendant is God. And his witness is Israel. And we look at uh, chapter 43, verse 10. Look at it in your text. Chapter 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Now, here's the thing. Look back at verse 8, first verse we read. Bring out the people who are blind and yet have eyes and who are deaf and yet have ears. Here's the thing. This is what's shocking about the whole scene. The blind and deaf are God's witnesses, Israel. Think about that. Yeah, I have a witness. They saw the whole thing. They heard the whole thing. Bring them out and they'll tell you all about it. You bring your witnesses out and they're blind and deaf. Is that a good witness? We, we have, that's, that's what we have to kind of admit right here. This is the situation. God says, I have witnesses, bring them out. And they're blind and they're deaf. He says, but no, 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 they are my witnesses. I, I promise, let me show you what's gonna happen here. They are my witnesses. You know that by looking back at chapter 42, verses 18 and 19. If you look back at it, it says, hear you deaf, look you blind. Who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger? So just back in 42, it was already explained who this blind and deaf one is. And it is his servant, his chosen instrument, Israel. How are these people going to serve God as witnesses by being blind and deaf? How do you do that? Well, first of all, why are Israel, why are these people called blind and deaf? Blind and deaf in what way? Well, they're blind, but they have eyes. Well, you can be blind and have eyes, right? Yeah. They're deaf and they have ears. Um, but the whole idea here is that they're Blind, but yet they have eyes that work just fine. They, they're deaf, but they have ears that work just fine. Why are they called blind and deaf? Well, there's a reason. Jeremiah says it this way, Jeremiah 5.21, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but don't see, who have ears but don't hear. Or Ezekiel says it, Ezekiel 12.2, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see, but they don't see, who have ears to hear, but they don't hear, for, reason being, they are a rebellious house. Why are they called blind and deaf, and in what sense are they blind and deaf? They are unable to see and hear God at work in their midst. It's a moral and a theological blindness and deafness. I think we get this, don't we? By the way, in your life, 
how many times have you been deaf to the word of God? You have ears that work just fine. I know you do. But yet you hear the word of God and it, it ricochets like you never even heard it. You know what it is to be deaf to the word of God. Likewise, you know what it is to be blind to God working. You know what that's like. And so, in a sense, we, we kind of have sympathy on them, don't we? Because we get their struggle. We kind of can somewhat be in their shoes. It's a tendency maybe to look back at the people of Israel and say, how could you possibly be rebellious to a God who have done so many great and wonderful, miraculous things? Do you remember what God just did? There was the most powerful army on the planet encamped around them. And they're this little itty-bitty, tiny kingdom. And God wiped out 185,000 of their troops in a moment. And they left running. They didn't even have to do anything. And then yet, they are still this blind and deaf people. And we might say, how can you not see God at work right there? How could you not have miraculous faith in this moment, given all that God has done and all that you've seen? Right. How could you not have faith given all that you have heard and all that you have seen? And we get it, don't we? Why don't I have a great and wonderful faith given all that I've seen, given all that I've heard? Why? Why is my faith what it is? And so we have sympathy on them. But still, we have this question. We get why they're blind and deaf. But how is God going to use a blind and deaf witness? That's a good question. Well, before we get to that, because it's, it's going to be explained here in a minute, let's just look at the verdict, because the verdict now comes about, second half of verse 10. So we've had the trial, uh, and there is the plaintiff and their witnesses, which they don't have any. And then there's the defendant and his witnesses. And so God is the defendant, and uh, he brings out his witnesses, and they're, they're blind and deaf. But they are his witnesses. That's important that you, that you know that. They are his witnesses, and his witnesses are effective, but they're blind and deaf. Right, that it doesn't go together, right, but it, it will make sense. Okay, so we have the verdict. Let's look at it in the text. Before me, here, here it is. So God is now judge. God's, he was in the defendant seat calling his witnesses, but now he's stepped out of his defendant seat. Now he's sitting as judge, and here's the verdict. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no other. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, you are my witnesses. You know this, declares the Lord, and I am God. Henceforth, I am he, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. I work, and there is no one who can turn it back. That's the verdict. That's how the trial ended up with his blind and deaf witnesses. How did we get there? By the way, just notice, you are my witnesses is not a command here. It's a statement of reality. It doesn't say, be my witnesses. It says, no, no, no. You are my witnesses. Blind and deaf as you may be, you are my witnesses. And the verdict has come back that I am God. And you have proved it to be the case. How did we do that? We're blind and deaf. We don't even understand what you're saying right now. I declared and saved and proclaimed. So this is a, a throwback to multiple events. When did God save? 
When did God declare? When did he proclaim? Well, he's been doing it all along, hasn't he? We know our Old Testament history, these big events throughout the history of Israel. We know them to be true. We know them. We know about them. When did God declare and save and proclaim? That's what he does. That is what God does. He declares. He saves. He proclaims. That's how God works. So what are we referencing back? The biggest event to go and reference back is how the people were held in bondage to Egypt and were miraculously set free from their captors. This story went on and on throughout fame and infamy and within the people of Israel. They know this story. So he's saying, don't you remember that I am that God? I am that God that said I was going to deliver you. I delivered you and I proclaimed that I'm going to continue to deliver. I've, I've been doing it this whole time. I've been delivering you. I said it and I did it and I'm saying it now and I'm going to do it in the future. I'm going to do what I said. Why? Because I'm the sovereign Lord of history. And there is none other that can rival me. I act and who can turn it back? I speak and who can say no? Who is there who can rival your God? None. So we go back to what was said just previously. And he says, in beginning of chapter 43, thus says the Lord who created you, who formed you, fear not. Why fear not? Because God is the sovereign Lord of history and he told you he's going to deliver you and there is no one who can stop him from delivering you. He's going to do it. He said it. He's done it in the past. He's going to do it in the future. Does this make sense? By the way, they were just delivered from the Assyrians, right? They were just miraculously delivered and already they need to be told that they were delivered. They already need to be told that God's going to save you. He's going to work. He's going to do it. Why? Why are we a people who are so prone to forget what God has done? Why? Think about those moments in your life. I know you have them. I know you have them. You were on the top of the mountain and nothing could stop you and your faith because you saw God at work. You believed his word to be true. And now look at you. Or maybe look at the roller coaster that your life has been on. Little faith, a lot of faith, little faith, a lot of faith, and it's up and it's down and it's up. And what do we need? We need to be reminded that our God is the sovereign Lord of history and what he promised to do, he will certainly do. We need to be reminded just like they needed to be reminded, don't we? We do need to be reminded. Now, how is all this working and how has Israel proved to be effective witnesses? Uh, I'll, say, I'll say it this way. It's on the screen. The nations have seen the power and presence of God through his covenant love for Israel. In other words, they are living proof of God's identity. So just think back to God delivering them just from the Assyrians just previously. Did the Assyrians know that there is a supernatural power guiding and protecting the people of Israel? How did all these people just die? Almost 200,000 people just drop dead. There is something going on here. There is a God at work and he must be real. Right? Now, go back to the, Israel, or the Exodus event. Do you remember what God did at that event? Do you know that event's true, right? It's not a kid's story it's actually kind of a bad kid story if that's a kid story. But that's, so there were people holding them in bondage. They let them go and then they ran after them. They got to a sea and they couldn't get by. The, their captors were fleeing or running after them and they were fleeing and they had nowhere to go. So what did God do? 
He separated the water so that his people could walk through free. And then when the, when the bad guys, the Egyptians, came in, God closed the water back on. That is a miraculous event that everyone in the world looked and saw that God, the God of Israel, is the God of history. And how did he prove it to be the case? With his witnesses. He proved it to be the case with these people who were functioning as his witnesses. The life of Israel is a witness to the God of history. Do you see it? What is a witness? A witness is a person or a thing that provides evidence, proof, right? It's almost like God is saying this. I've loved you and I've saved you before. People and nations have seen my love and my power on display in you. And you are my witnesses. Blind and deaf as you may be, I'm using you to make myself known. I am using you to make myself known among the nations. No one can deliver from my hand. No one can stop me from doing what I plan to do. So we might say this then, right? Nothing can stop you from doing what you plan to do. What do you plan to do? I want to know. What is your plan? So after this courtroom scene, which establishes God as the sovereign Lord of history, it moves then to the whole point. If God is the sovereign God of history, then listen to what he has planned. So that's where we turn next. Now we move out of the courtroom and we move into God's plan. So let's look at it. Verse 14. Look just first with me at verses 14 and 15. Thus says the Lord. So thus, right? Now we've established something. The sovereign Lord of history is about to say something. Listen up. So he says, Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon. Oh, that was just a knife to the heart to the people who are so excited to listen to what God has to say. For your sake I send to Babylon. What is Babylon doing? And bring them down as refugees, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Now, what is this saying? Actually, what this is saying is that God is going to Babylon and rescue them and bring them back. But what does that mean? In order to be rescued and brought back, that that means something, that they have to be taken there first. God is saying, fear not. I am the sovereign Lord of history. I've got a plan, but listen, listen. My plan is to send you into Babylonian captivity. Don't fear I've got a plan. Yeah, it goes beyond that. It's not just to lead you into captivity. It goes beyond that. My plan is then to stretch out my hand and to redeem you just like I always do. Just like I always do. I've said it. I've proclaimed it. I've saved you in the past. I'm going to save you in the future. This is my plan. I'm going to send you to Babylon, but I'm going to reach out and I'm going to grab you and I'm going to save you. So this is what the Lord has planned for the people of this time, their successive generations there, because that's going to span a a little bit of time. That doesn't happen overnight. That takes a little little while. So as the one true God and Savior, sovereign Lord of history, the verdict is confirmed. This is what God is about to do. He will lead you into captivity, but soon deliver you. 
Remember, he alone is your redeemer. It says Bab- Babylon and Chaldeans. I just want you to make a note there that as we continue on through uh, Isaiah, you're going to see these terms used interchangeably. The reason being, Babylon is noted as the location and the Chaldeans, the people who inhabit that location. So it's, in Hebrew, it's a parallelism in Hebrew, and so it's basically saying the same thing, okay? Babylon is referencing the location. Chaldeans is referencing the people who are there, okay? So it's the same. Don't want that to be confusing. They will not be able to escape in their ships in the mighty rivers of Babylon. You remember when we looked at our map, which is incredibly helpful? Where is Babylon situated? Right in between two rivers, right? So they have these wonderful ships that they can flee and they can go wherever they want. Not even their boats in which they rejoice that they can flee in, not even then will they be able to save themselves. I'm doing something and they will not be able to flee because I stretch out my hand and I act and who can turn it back, right? I plan and who can mess up my plan? Nobody, just keep that in mind. When you're in captivity, keep it in mind. When you're there in Babylon with your oppressors standing face to face with them, remember what I planned. Remember what I said and remember who I am. This is all leading somewhere, isn't it? For your sake, I will deliver you. Fear not. How is it for their sake? How could it possibly be for their sake? For my sake, you would not lead me into Babylonian captivity. You want to do something for my sake, let them never come. That's what we might say, right? For my sake, let me keep this job or get a better one. But sometimes it seems to be, and we know, that the Lord's plan is, no, you're going to lose that job. And you're not going to have any money. And that's how it's going to work. But don't fear. You know who I am. So where does this go next? Now, I told you last week we were going to go eight verses 8 to 15. I didn't keep that promise. We're going to go on. We have to because it, this next section is... is such a compliment to what has come previously. We, we had to look at it too. So that was redemption near. So by near, we mean what's going to happen in their generations, right? Going to send a Babylonian captivity, but I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to pull you back. I'm going to save you because I'm the sovereign Lord of history. And that's what I plan to do. And no one can stop me. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to prove that you are my witnesses to all the world. I'm going to do that. We stand back and we say, well, God did that back in history, long time ago. Okay. How does that have any effect on me today? You might think that. Is this only in reference to a past event? Or is this also in reference to something that we experience as a people today? Just look at verses 16 through 21. It's amazing the shift that takes place right here. It's amazing. Just look at it with me. Notice in the language that we're about to read how it seems no longer to be about an exact historical situation, but it seems to be far more grand than that. So listen. Thus says the Lord. There it is again. Thus says the Lord. Remember who he is. Remember now. Thus says the Lord. Who's the Lord? The sovereign Lord of history says, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the waters, 
who brings forth chariot and horse army warrior. They lie down, they can't rise. They're extinguished, quenched like a wick. What was that? The Exodus, right? He made a way in the waters. He brought down horse and rider in the sea. We remember that? Remember, remember who I am. Remember what I did in the past. Remember my miraculous activity. But is that what he's saying? Because look at verse 18. Remember not the former things. What? Then why did you just reference them? You don't want me to think about that, then don't say it. Remember not the former things, nor consider old things. Why is he saying that? Because he wants you to think about the former things because in comparison to that, you have no idea what he's about to do. In comparison to that, what he's doing next, you can't even fathom it. Listen, what he's going to do next. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. I'm not going to do what I did before. So you're thinking right now, Israel, when I send you into Babylonian captivity, just like when we were in Egyptian captivity, our God's going to swoop in. He's going to do a plague thing, kind of like he did in Egypt, which we all loved. And then he's going to send us out of Babylonian captivity and we're going to get stuck, right? But God's going to come in and he's going to do something miraculous. He's going to make a way in the sea or something like that. And then we're going to go home and it's going to be miraculous, just like the Exodus. But God says, if that's all you're thinking about right now, you have no idea what I have planned here. I'm I'm doing something new. What are you going to do? I'm going to make a way in the wilderness, in the rivers, in the desert. Wild beasts will honor me. Wild beasts will honor me. The jackals and the ostriches. Why are we talking about jackals and ostriches? For I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. What are we talking about right there? All of a sudden, we, we were talking about a real historical event, delivery from... Babylonian captivity, and now we're talking about ostriches? What are we talking about? God is doing something that you can't even fathom in this moment. What is he doing? You see, the redemptive act of delivering a people from Babylon is a near prophecy. It happened in their generations, but what we have right here is a far prophecy that did not happen in their generations, but certainly is affecting us today because that reality has come true. What is that? A new thing. Okay, so right now what I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you um, by, by taking uh, a passage out of Isaiah 42 uh, and showing you that God has already talked about this new thing that he's going to do. And then we're going to look at Isaiah 43, this, this, the end here, and this new thing. And then we're going to flip over to our New Testament because there's a New Testament author that brings specific reference to Isaiah 43. Okay? So just look, look back with me just for a second at Isaiah 42. We're, what we're doing is we're trying to figure out what this new thing is that God is doing. What is this new thing that you have planned? What, what is this new thing? Because the sovereign Lord of history has planned it. It's a new thing. We like new things. It scares us a little bit. New things scare us. What are you doing? Give us some specifics rather than talking about ostriches because if ostriches is all you have planned, I don't know that I want a part of that plan. What are you planning? What's the big plan? Because the whole point so far has been there is a sovereign Lord of history. He is your God. You are his people. I'm going to do something you can't even fathom. 
What is it? I want to know. Give me some idea what this new thing is. So Isaiah 42, 6 through 9, just a few verses. Um, I do have it on the screen for you as well because it's important that we see it. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring, about those, uh, to bring out those who are prisoners from the dungeon, the, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I give my glory to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Therefore, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. And before they spring forth, I tell them to you. So there's the new things. We were given a little bit more specifics back a chapter ago so that when we get to chapter 43, the reader already has those specifics in mind, right? So we have some specifics about what this new thing is. And in this new thing, there are some things I'd like to highlight for you. So uh, uh, is that already up there? Oh, it's, well, it's already highlighted. Okay. So there's a few things. So a covenant, that's, that's a key word, right? Okay. A light for the nations, that, uh, that sounds familiar, right? Okay, uh, open eyes that are blind. That sounds familiar. Uh, bring, the, bring out the prisoners. I like that. Those who sit in darkness. That is, we're moving from darkness to light. Who liked that imagery? Moving from darkness to light. You don't know? John. I mean, I don't know what we're going to do with them if they, can't, if they don't know that. How many weeks did we talk about that? From dark to light, right? With dark, you've been taken from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, right? That's what this is talking about. What is the new thing? Redemption in Christ is the new thing. That's the new thing. How do we know that that's what's being referenced? Well, as he goes on, he's he's talking about these new things. That's good. Now, so there's a new covenant. Those who are blind will see. The people will be a light to the nations. People in darkness will be brought to light. This is all very good. Now, here is uh, something that's pretty exciting for us. I want you to just turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm, I'm going to show you this. Now, I, I'll, I will mention that before I did my study on this passage, and actually it was somewhat near the end, um, that as I was comparing, I'll tell you a little nerdy thing here for a second as you're turning to 1 Peter 2. Um, I like to take any Old Testament text that I'm working with and, of course, look at it in the Hebrew, but I also look at it in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And um, because, the reason being, is because that would have been the Bible of the early church. So when the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, it's quoted from the Septuagint rather than from the Hebrew Bible. And so you can find exact wording uh, in the Greek, in the New Testament, as you did in the Old Testament, even though the New Testament's written in Greek, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. So when I was comparing the Greek Old Testament to the Greek New Testament, I found some pretty interesting things that um, I'm not going to share with you the details of, because you're thinking, oh, I don't like where this conversation is going. Uh, don't worry, I'm th- we're not going into those details. But what I am saying is I found a New Testament author who was quoting exactly word for word from Isaiah 42 and 43. And he's telling us what it means. Would you like to see that? Because that's very exciting to me that we have a New Testament author looking at kind of what seems like an obscure text, but a New Testament author is quoting it and telling us, and that's what this means for you. And so here's what you must do because this is true. I'd like to see that. And it's very exciting when we get to see 
a New Testament author telling us specifically, here is what this means for you. And so I'd just like to show you. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 9. You are, who's, okay, so we just changed the New Testament. When he's talking to the you, who's he talking to? I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it did. Okay, so when he's talking to the you, who's he talking to? Believers, right? Those in Christ. So you, that's you plural, you all, but you all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That all sounds great. Here's what's happening. Go to that next one. Okay, so here are the direct quotations from Isaiah 42 and 43. Direct quotations, word for word from the Greek Old Testament, Peter is quoting here. Word for word. No change in the words. Now change in form because they're a different, they function differently in the sentence. But anyway, it's the exact same word that's being used here, and what words is he using? So I've, I've just got a little reference here uh, on, the, on the next slide. Uh, so Peter applies all of these truths from Isaiah 42 and 43 to believers, and so here's how he does it. So a chosen race, we see that. Look with me at chapter 43, verse 20. See, it's diff- when we read in our Old Testament and it says a chosen people, we don't think a chosen race is a direct quotation, right? It's different words. But in the Greek, it is a, an exact direct quotation. It says, the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals, the ostriches. Yes, what are the ostriches? To give drink in the water, in the wilderness, the rivers, the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. That's right. We are the ostriches. So what is he talking about? These wild things that are being brought into conformity has direct reference to the redemption that Christ is bringing in his kingdom. And so what is being said here, the rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, who are the chosen people? That is the chosen race that is being quoted. And if that were just taken out of context, we, we, just, we have more that he's quoting, so we know the context that he's in. So next we have Isaiah 42.7. When Peter says a people called out of darkness into marvelous light or into light, Isaiah 42, 7 says, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and from prison those who sit in darkness. Those who sit in darkness are called out of darkness, word for word, again, a direct quotation. Next, it doesn't end there. There's more. There's more quotes. A people for his own possession, Isaiah 43, 21. So these last two are all from Isaiah 43, 21. So just look at Isaiah 43, 21. A people for his own possession, a people to proclaim his excellencies is Isaiah 43, 21. The people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. You see that? The people who I formed for myself, that is, a people for my own possession, to proclaim his excellencies, that is, that they might declare my praise. Do you see it? What I'm showing you here is that Peter has just taken Isaiah 42 and 43, and he ended in chapter 43, verse 8, just as, or as, uh, verse 21, just as we did today. And he has said, look at all of what is being said by Isaiah, and let me tell you what that means for you today, because you are living in that promise 
that new thing that God promised, that's yours. So let me summarize what I've just said in different words. Just as the sovereign Lord of history was faithfully working in that situation for that people in that time, you must see that this very same God has now called you his people. That people that God was using, that he was faithful to, Peter is now saying, but now you must understand that God is your God. You must understand that you are a chosen race. That you are created for his own possession. That you have been created to proclaim his excellencies. That is you. And you see all that God was doing. You see all the miraculous, wonderful workings of God. That's for you. You have the new thing. You're not as excited as I am about that. If you believe that that God is the sovereign Lord of history and that he loved them that much and that he was that involved in their life, that is how involved he is in your life. Do you see that? Do you see that no matter what you go through in life, your God who loves you is the sovereign God of history? Do you see it? Every single thing that we go through in life is not an accident. Everything, 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 everything. And it's for your welfare. It's for your good. It is for your sake that I send to Babylon. So you might think, what is God doing when he leads me into these times, into these distresses? It's for your sake. He has not abandoned you. The call to you is the same, so fear not. So we have to end how Peter ends, okay? Peter takes this truth and he applies it and that's how we're gonna end, okay? So let's just look at the application that Peter brings about, about this whole situation. What does Peter have to say? Do you wanna know what Peter has to say? I wanna know what Peter has to say. Peter spent some serious time with Jesus. He was one of the top three in the apostles. Top, I don't qualify that, right? So he was... Uh, someone who would have known very well what these things mean. And how did he then take these truths, this prophecy given to Israel, and how did he apply it to the believer's life? Well, he does it this way. Look at verses 11 and 12. I do not have that on the screen, I don't think. But look at 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. I take that back, I do. There it is. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. So he just, he just quoted from Isaiah 42 and 43. He just applied all those great truths to believers. And then he says this, So, beloved, I urge you then, as sojourners and, what's the word, the key word here? Exiles. So he takes us and he puts us in Babylonian captivity. Not freed from it, no. In it. He says, so remember, beloved, loved by God, you're in exile right now. Do you see it? Beloved, loved by God, you're not forsaken, fear not, but you are in exile right now. And here's what you must do as exiles. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that 
when they speak against you as evildoers, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, what? Just previously, I told you that God was using Israel as his witness, right? Blind and deaf as they were. The nations have seen the power and presence of God through his covenant love for Israel and their living proof of God's identity, right? Remember when we said that? Living proof of God's identity. And so here is what has been said to us then as believers. Let the nations see the power and presence of God through his covenant love for you in Christ. You are living proof of God's identity as the sovereign Lord of history. That's a lot for us to hold on to, isn't it? That's a big, that's a big responsibility. I'm a witness for God. I'm not good for much. Right, just like blind and deaf Israel. But yet God does it, doesn't he? So the call to us then is be the best witness with your conduct in your time in, in exile as you possibly can be. Conduct yourself as though the sovereign Lord of history has redeemed you. Conduct yourself as though you're living in the new covenant. Conduct yourself as one who has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Conduct yourself as someone who was blind but now can see. Conduct yourself as one who once was deaf but now can hear. Do not act in your time of exile as though you are still in darkness as though you are still deaf, as though you are still blind, but instead, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they see your good deeds, they might give glory to God on the day of visitation. That is our call. How do these truths in Isaiah help us? Well, they help us to see God's great covenant love, which never ends. We get to see his character. He's the sovereign Lord of history. This is good. But he is our God. And he has made all these things true for us in Jesus Christ. This is a great, a great text for rejoicing in who we have been called to be in Christ. We have a great God who loves us, but he reminds us, fear not during your time of exile. So let us be God's witnesses. Let us conduct ourselves as we should. Let us represent the God of history well with our lives. That's what he calls us to. All right, let's pray.